everybody. Jonathan Doyle with you once again. Welcome aboard to the Supply Side Podcast. Thanks for the pleasure of your company. Hope I can bring you some value today. One of my favorite speakers used to say that you don't need a whole bunch of great ideas to change your life. You just need one good idea that you're actually prepared to use. So I've been imbibing a load of great ideas over this last sort of 18 month period. I don't think any of us would put our hands in the air and say how much we've enjoyed the insanity of COVID, but I guess there is a case to be made for extracting whatever good can be found in difficult circumstances. And at least for me, with my international travel kneecapped, kidnapped, eviscerated, if you will, I've had a chance to do a great deal of reading and thinking and listening in this fascinating field of classical economics, supply side and global macro. I wanted to start this short episode with a quote from the famous John Locke. Listen to this. This is from his second treatise in government. Listen carefully. He says, It is the natural right of every person that they should not be subject to the inconstant, uncertain, unknown, arbitrary will of another man. John Locke, second treatise in government. Listen one more time. He says, It is the natural right of every person that they should not be subject to the inconstant, uncertain, unknown, arbitrary will of another man. Now, I know I've got a global audience listening in, but here in Australia, the the worst case management scenario in terms of COVID and lockdowns has come from the state here of Victoria, which last week went into, I think it's third snap lockdown, 6.6 million people confined essentially to house arrest because of a single infection. You can see that the uh, approach here, of course, is eradication, which everybody with a brain understands will not be happening with the novel coronavirus. We may get some uh, reduction. We may get eventual immunity. We sure as hell ain't getting eradication, but that message hasn't gotten through yet because 6.6 million people are effectively locked in their homes. Now, on that topic, I want to share with you some fascinating stuff from one of my favorite economics writers, Adam Creighton, and he's writing today, and he's quoting from a fascinating new report called COVID-19 and the Political Economy of Mass Hysteria. This comes from a bunch of researchers at universities in Spain and, if I'm correct, in Peru, who are, sorry, in Chile, and have written extensively on the political case for driving mass hysteria for the purposes of political control, which, of course, brings us straight back to this John Locke quote, it is the natural right of every person that they should not be subject to the inconstant, how those lockdowns feeling, friends, inconstant, uncertain, unknown, and arbitrary, unpredictable, who knows what's going to happen next, the arbitrary will of another man. So this is what we're experiencing, of course, with many of the lockdowns. But one of the quotes from this report is as follows. Politicians have incentive to overshoot the mark in their responses to a threat because they are largely exempt from the risk of possible wrong decisions and their costs, which they pass on to others. And I've been saying this to my wife for a long time. I said that politicians, especially in this COVID sense, have nothing to lose. 
So rather than for us cabinet-based parliamentary government where senior politicians make decisions and take responsibility for their decisions, we have all, of course, been getting very used to this concept of trusting in the science. So politicians, as you're well aware, often defray these difficult decisions to unelected public officials and then simply when everything goes wrong they just said we were following the science just remember that before copernicus everybody else was following the science too the science that said that the sun orbits around the earth so let's remind ourselves that science is an iterative process where we learn as we go it is not a complete metaphysical given so we're at the interesting moment in history where Scientism has become an effective religion, of course. The high priests of culture become those public officials with a science mandate. And then our democratic processes become profoundly subverted when politicians avoid any form of personal responsibility by offloading these decisions to others. And I think that's an important point because it goes to the very essence of what democracy is all about or what it used to be about at one point. Another quote here talking about our experience here in the Southern Hemisphere. The quote is, Australia and New Zealand have incurred costs equivalent to a world war. And more than any other nation has fighting a pandemic that has killed not even 1,000 people with a median age of the mid-80s between them. And this is widely seen as brilliant. I like that line. We've basically incurred the costs of a world war for something that has killed only around a thousand people now no death is desirable of course or good but we have to remind ourselves that in a standard flu season these deaths would of course be a thousand deaths would not be unusual jim rickards made an interesting point in his latest book that part of the problem with lockdowns is it actually diminishes immunity you see when we're out there around each other normal life pre-covid we're actually exposed to a whole bunch of things and that basically increases our immunity over time doesn't it you know we're exposed to so many things but now being locked in our houses many of us at least our immunity has been affected fascinating that we're trying to stay safe and healthy while simultaneously reducing our immunity a couple of other things I've been following Wolf Richter, who some of you would know, as uh, releases some great regular research, and he's quoting something today from the American Enterprise Institute. And this is a study released on foot traffic in major U.S. metro areas based on phone GPSs, you know, pinging off phone towers. So it's basically a track of how many humans are out and about in major metro areas in the U.S. So it's tracking the 40 largest metro areas in the U.S. And foot traffic is down somewhere between 71% to 38% of January 2020 levels. So New York is at 38% of January's 2020 levels. L.A. is at 45%. I think the best was actually Kansas City. But you look at New York, 38% of its previous foot traffic. And what a tragedy because... That is truly one of the great cities of the world and somewhere that we used to visit once or twice a year and uh, just great memories. And I know James Altucher was saying lately that he doesn't think it's ever coming back. And it's going to be an interesting discussion. Now, 
the reasons, of course, that the foot traffic's down with COVID, tourism's down, obviously. Uh, San Francisco's running very low. We used to love visiting there, doing the Alcatraz tours, all that sort of stuff. So international tourism and domestic tourism is way down for San Fran. Other key factors, of course, working from home. This whole working from home phenomenon still playing out. Interestingly, shopping malls were not doing well pre-COVID. Big department stores in huge amounts of trouble as e-commerce takes over. And interestingly, the other big effect on foot traffic is entertainment. People with movie theatres shut. People going out of the home less for entertainment while streaming services kick in. So more entertainment's taking place inside the home. So the question becomes, of course, how much of this is going to change when COVID eventually recedes. And Wolf Richter's take is that the tourism stuff will gradually return. It'll take a long time. He thinks that the work-from-home phenomena, different hybrid variations of that will continue. He thinks shopping malls won't recover because e-commerce has become so effective and so powerful. And entertainment won't recover pre-COVID because even the big studios now are releasing their content to streaming and bypassing theatres. So it'll be interesting to see how that resolves. Look, the last thing I want to finish on today is I want to merge what I was talking about with George Gammon, uh, his video from this morning, and also an important speech from the governor of the Bank of Japan going way back to 2002, so 19 years ago. And what I learned from George Gammon this morning was that, of course, something you you would already be across, but of unemployment, and if you look at the real unemployment, so he's drawing this from shadow stats, if you look at real unemployment, it's skyrocketed. At the same time as income has increased, go work that out from a point of view of economics. Less people have employed are employed. People's incomes have been increasing through what he fame what George Gammon calls uh, stimmy checks. So, what sort of economic world or waters have we entered when unemployment is high but incomes increasing? That world very well is the world of MMT because the magical unicorn tap of fairy money has just got no limits at the moment. So we're now north of 20 trillion in global excess liquidity since COVID began. Now, the reason I want to mention that as we begin to finish is the ultimate question is, this is what got me into this space, was if you can just print money indefinitely, when does it eventually stop? Like at what point can you just not use that as a system? What are its inherent limitations? So I've been um, powering through the last sections of Richard Duncan's seminal text, The Dollar Crisis, and here on page 219 he is quoting a uh, speech from the Governor of the Bank of Japan, Masaru Hayami, on July 24, 2002. And as many of Japan is the ultimate experiment in monetarism, right? Japan with the guys that really threw the money printing sink at a moribund economy in the hope that it would kickstart. But here's a couple of points. The first point that the governor of the Bank of Japan made 19 years ago is this. The bank has conducted decisive monetary easing, which is, wait for it, unprecedented in the history of central banking both at home and abroad. Well, first point, he's honest, huh? He's telling it like it actually is. He's going, you know what, everybody? We've just printed more money than anyone anywhere. Well, that was 2002. 
And of course, if he had a time machine, he would realize that really when it comes to printing money, he was a bit of an amateur, really, because it's just changed so much since then. But here is uh, a couple of key points from this speech. He says, it is extremely difficult to revitalize Japan's economy, wait for it, solely by monetary easing when it faces various structural problems. One more time, it's difficult to revitalize Japan's economy solely by monetary easing when it faces various structural problems. Now, let's summarize that. Let's make that more accessible even. He's basically saying that we've thrown more and more money at this and we have not been able to revitalize it because there's inherent structural problems around productivity perhaps. Because at the end of the day, wealth isn't just magically printed and you can't create wealth through necessarily through inflation or through stealing it from others. You create it through producing goods and services of value. So way back 19 years ago, we had the first absolute evidence of a central bank trying to throw money at an economy and realizing that it didn't work, that it fundamentally did not work. Now, I was listening to Emil Kolonovsky and Jeff Snyder, their podcast, Making Sense, the other day, which I really like. And he was quoting someone, I can't get the exact quote, I'm going to have to dig it out again, but he basically made the point that, you know, science builds on itself, right? And the basis of the scientific method is that you keep building upon previous discoveries. So as Newton famously said, if I have seen further is because I have stood on the shoulders of giants. Now, you'd think that you'd look back at the Japanese experiment and say they responded to structural problems in the economy by printing vast amounts of money and they're telling us it didn't work. So if you look at what's happening in the US now, so the stimulus package is what, $1.9 trillion. George Gammon showing us, of course, that unemployment's rising while incomes are going stratospheric. How are these not structural problems? And what's the response to print more money, to produce more stimulus? So it's interesting that in science, we learn from the past. You go to hospital next week, they're probably not using leeches. Interesting trivia, they actually still do use leeches in hospitals, believe it or not. My wife was a nurse many years ago. But they're probably not going to do that. They're probably not going to provide no anesthetic. The scientific method taught them that, that in medical science, for example, you could make things better by learning from the past. But here we are in 2021, seemingly incapable of learning from the messages of the past and, and history itself. So we are in interesting times, and I, I desperately do not want to be a pessimist. I'm, I'm trying to constantly... Stop to smell the economic roses, but it's a little bare, and I'm curious, and I'd love you to post a comment about where we're truly heading. I just can't see how, in Duncan's methodology, we're not just in vast asset bubbles that cannot be resolved by printing more and more money, but that is what we are doing. All right, let me know what you think. Please share this with a few people. Please make sure you've hit subscribe. It's been great to see the numbers growing every week but wherever you're listening to this the supply side podcast spotify google podcast apple if you could leave a rating give it some stars and hit that subscribe button but you know what the biggest single thing you could do to help would be to grab this wherever you're hearing it and post it on your social media feeds i don't use social media unfortunately you won't find me on it but if you are still using it you can at least get some common sense out there 
to other people who may find it of interest. Okay, one more time. Remember that quote from the start? John Locke's second treatise in government. It is the natural right of every person that they should not be subject to the inconstant, uncertain, unknown, arbitrary will of another man. And as we reject the lessons of history, then the, what tends to happen is more and more control. All right. God bless you, everybody. Please make sure you've subscribed. My name is Jonathan Doyle. This has been the Supply Side Podcast, and I'm going to have another message for you very soon.